0: Hey folks, it's Denise Howell, and next up on This Week in Law, SEAL Team Six takes out Mickey? How could they do such a thing? But they did. We're gonna talk about some new privacy legislation, some copyright considerations via the Space Shuttle with Tanya Forsyte, Ernie Spenson, and Evan Brown next on This Week in Law.
1: Netcasts
2: you love.
3: From people you trust.
2: This is Twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Law is provided by CashFly at C A C H E F L Y dot com.
0: This is Twill, This Week in Law with Denise Howell, episode 113, recorded May 27, 2011. What's your data? This episode of This Week in Law is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to squarespace.com slash twill and be sure to check out their annual plans for savings of up to 20% off. And by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com twit. Hello, and welcome back to This Week in Law. I'm Denise Howell, and you've joined us for episode 113. We've got a great panel and some very interesting things to discuss this week about privacy, copyright, load sys, and all sorts of other uh, great topics to get into. But right now, I want to introduce our panel. We've got a newcomer to This Week in Law, Tanya Forsythe. Hi, Tanya.
3: Hi, Denise, really happy to be here. Thanks for having
0: me. I'm thrilled to have you. Uh, Tanya is an information privacy and security specialist on the legal side. And uh, she has a law firm in Southern California called the Information Law Group and also offices throughout the country. So we're thrilled to have you on and uh, definitely want to get get into some interesting legal and policy things that have been going on on the privacy front. So great to have your take on those sounds fantastic, glad to be here. Also joining us on a return visit to Twill is Ernie Spenson. Hello, Ernie.
2: Hey, how you doing? Good to be back.
0: Great to have you back. Ernie, of course, for those who uh, have not tuned into Twill when Ernie's been on before, which has been frequently, uh, is an attorney in New Orleans and has his own firm, the Svenson Law Firm. And his blog, Ernie the Attorney, is always full of great insights and observations. And we're thrilled to have you back. I know the listeners and viewers have been clamoring for you, Ernie, so <laughs> you're satisfying pent-up demand here.
2: Well, those three people will be happy today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Far more than three, I assure you. And uh, also back with us is Evan Brown from Hinshaw & Culbertson in Chicago and his blog, InternetCases.com. Hello, Evan.
1: Hi, Denise. Good morning, good afternoon, as the case may be. It's great to be here, Ernie. Great to see you. And i uh, looking forward to... Uh, Looking forward to our, Tanya, you too. Good, looking forward to our discussion. It's great.
0: Yes, me too. And happy Labor Day Friday, or I'm sorry, Memorial Day Friday to all of you. I hope that everyone's uh, getting a start on the holiday weekend. So um, let's jump into some privacy stuff first. Uh, There's been uh, something on our list to talk about for a while that we have not yet gotten around to. So I'm going to go ahead and jump into the ECPA Uh, which is an anticipated update, a proposed update uh, to a bill. Uh, It is a bill updating an existing law that was enacted in 1986 uh, that uh, deals with how um, data can be collected on um, location and privacy information and uh, would put a lot of protections in place that don't currently exist. Uh, Let's go to our privacy expert, Tanya. Tanya. Uh, you want to bring us up to speed on senator leahy's bill and uh, what you think of it
3: sure Um, start with dig right into the the tough stuff here so ecba as we call it has been around as you say since around 1986 and Mm -hmm. uh, senator leahy has proposed some revisions these have been in the works and under discussion for some time and there's been a lot of industry uh pressure desire to get some changes that would bring ECPA up to date with current technology. Um, There's a question there of course as to whether we can ever catch up with technology, whether the law really can and whether it should attempt to do so because our laws are sometimes more effective when they are technology neutral. The problem as industry sees it and particularly with cloud computing emerging and growing as much as it has, uh, is that the government has the ability to obtain private uh, and personal information under certain circumstances, and sometimes without a warrant. And historically, um, there under ECPA, there are these very complex um, uh, rules about when there's a restriction, when the government needs a warrant, when they don't. Um, there's a 180-day rule that people refer to often, um, at which point the, the information may become available to the government. And this would, these revisions to ECPA from Senator Leahy, would, put, would make it more difficult in some cases for the government to get uh, that information. They would need a warrant under more circumstances, so meaning they would need probable cause. And just to give you uh, an example of where these concerns come up, Um, Many companies worry that, for example, if they put their data in a cloud, which um, is a multi-tenancy server where you've got lots of different companies sharing space, um, that if the government is looking for a bad guy on that server, comes in and grabs the whole server, they're also going to have access to lots of other information from other companies and other individuals and uh, they won't be able to get back that information, the privacy of citizens will be at risk. So uh, a number of companies, um, Microsoft, Google, others, um, have been working to try to get these changes and they were not a surprise. It's not a surprise that Senator Leahy has introduced the amendments to ECPA. I think that of all the bills that we might see at the federal level, to put some privacy uh, protections in place, it's more likely we'll see these changes or some changes to ECPA, as opposed to some of the other bills that have been out there like Harry McCain and others that would put restrictions on private sector. There seems to be much more impetus to get controls on what the government can get its hands on. And of course, there are parts of the government that don't like that um, because it would make, in some ways, their law enforcement um, capabilities more challenging.
0: Right, so let's unpack some of that a bit. Of course, ECPA stands for the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. Yes. And I guess that begs the question, as to what counts as an electronic communication under the Act, I, I gather that this is going to apply to cell phones and email communications and data collected on cell phones, such as location data. But I'm wondering if if uh, the telephone com- transmissions, you know, the cellular transmissions, are actually going to come under this as well?
3: Right. So it's quite uh, complex. Again, as I mentioned, the way ECPA is currently structured, there are two parts to it. There's what we call the Stored Communications Act part of EPA, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, and there's the Wiretap um, Act element, which has to do with phone communications. And one of the differences has to do with whether the transmission is, uh, the communication is in transmission or stored. Uh, which may uh, and 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 if we even begin to go down the road of what's in storage and what's in transmission, we start to get into really sticky issues. Um, whatever kinds of communications we're talking about with modern technology, email, uh, cell wireless uh, transmissions, text messaging, instant messaging, um, and courts have also struggled already under the existing statute with what the definition of an electronic communications service is, which is, one, which is subject to one set of um, rules, and what a remote computing service is, which is subject to another set of rules. And those issues actually came up and were examined in the very uh, well-known case at the Supreme Court last year with the Kwan case mm-hmm. um, involving the Ontario a police officer unfortunately the Supreme Court never took that issue under consideration it was at the Ninth Circuit that it was considered and when it went up to the Supreme Court it never got uh, resolved but the question had to do under ACPA with under what circumstances can a company turnover private communications or a a communications provider turnover those uh, text messages or, or whatever they may be, and depending on whether a company is an electronic communication service or a remote computing service, they may have to get the consent of just the subscriber, which might just be the company, here it was the City of Ontario Police Department, or they might have to get the consent of the senders and recipients of those messages, which would have been the officer and his wife and girlfriend and those people. Um, And again, all of these very complex, sticky issues, and I assure you that in 1986, when this legislation was first passed, nobody even had the most remote idea that we'd be dealing with this kind of thing, um, which begs the question whether we should be legislating in this area at all, but um, we we certainly, I think we're highly likely to see some changes to the statute.
0: So in the last year or so, we've seen some interesting cases from the Ninth Circuit and elsewhere about uh, whether warrants are required to track someone's movements by si- simply, you know, sticking something on their car and following them around. This it seems a bit outside those parameters, but at least would give some assurance or greater protections that, that you know, if you're going to track someone's location using whatever they're carrying around with them, um, that a warrant may be required you know under the amendments uh, that would not be required now evan uh do you have any thoughts about this
1: well there i, I do note that there is a, a section in the uh the, the proposed legislation here it, it amends uh or it's section 2713 i guess that would be an amendment to the uh the, the stored communications act part of the uh, of the statute that talks about that provides certain exceptions for using uh, an electronic communications device to require geolocation information. So there are a lot of exceptions to that, you know, getting that information pursuant to a warrant. This is all in the proposed legislation. And and I think one of the, the, the criticisms of this is that the exceptions almost do away with the actual rule on what is an attempt here to to um strengthen the privacy information or the privacy interest in that uh, geolocation information so at this point um i think it's at least just worth noting and acknowledging the fact that the the concept of geolocation information is in this um, tanya correct me if i'm wrong i you know I, I don't think that there is anything in this that talks about you know, the use of gps but this would uh you know like Putting a GPS device on someone's car, but this would seem to go to the the, the concerns uh, that <clears throat> we've had or that have come to uh, to, to light recently with. Um, you know, all of the storage of, of geolocation information on mobile devices, both on the uh, uh, the Apple iOS platform and also the Android devices as well. Um, these two, th- you know, this legislation and that coming to, to, to light have kind of been independent things, but at least there is discussion about this, and that seems to be a positive t- development that uh, Congress is thinking about the privacy interests that are implicated by those technologies, which clearly were not around in 1986 when the legislation first started rolling along through time.
3: And I'll just throw in, I think that's right. Um, The problem, perhaps, is that, um, maybe it's a problem, maybe it's not a problem, Uh, that ECBA is not meant to be a comprehensive uh, privacy law the way that, say, the Kerry McCain bill is. Um, ECBA is very much focused on law enforcement's ability to obtain information and, and the limits on that. And so with the tracking and the location data issues, we have we would still, I think, have questions and issues about the ability of companies, private sector companies, to track uh, and use certain location data for, for example, uh, marketing purposes. And that has been a huge focus. Obviously, you mentioned issues, about the iphones and and android uh and and so far we don't really know the answer as to whether we are going to restrict private sector ability to do that or if we should and there are competing pressures from the privacy advocacy side and the consumer side on the one hand uh this very very uh, distinct sense that big brother is watching um, and I'll just say it myself. I have yet to do a, an interview with anyone recently where a, a reporter didn't mention the term "Big Brother." Um, <laughs> so I'm just going to put it out there. Uh, but um, on the other hand, uh, you know there are huge benefits to be got to be gleaned from relevant targeted advertising, and I think most consumers or many consumers actually see the benefit when they get advertising that, that means something to them for products that they actually want or care about. And it would be a big hit on the economy, potentially, um, to limit advertising um, and, and not allow for some amount of use of geographic information and provide consumers with those tools. So it's definitely an ongoing debate. I don't think ECPA, unfortunately, I don't think ECPA is going to solve the, answer all the questions and solve the problem.
0: Ernie, do you think of this as sort of a, a reaction or backlash to things like the Patriot Act and these super secret national security letters that we've discussed previously on the show that you're not even supposed to tell someone when you've received one. You're just supposed to comply and turn over the data to Big Brother or the government. Um, is, is this, Does this give you any more comfort that we're perhaps backing off of that kind of a, a
2: regime? Um, I don't know. I think what, what actually what I was interested in, and I'd like to get Uh, Tanya's take on this is, uh, I am interested in cloud computing. I mean, I use Dropbox a lot, and I I know a lot of other lawyers use it at the ABA Tech Show, when they asked lawyers how many people were using it. Most of them raised their hands, and there's this uh, wildfire debate going on in certain legal circles about whether it's appropriate or permissible for lawyers to use these cloud services. And where the debate seems to kind of gravitate to pretty quickly when amongst, especially among the lawyers who say cloud computing services like Dropbox, for example, are bad, is the idea that that those services would not protect sufficiently against a government warrant. And so people begin to hypothesize that, well, Dropbox will just turn over anything to the government, so you can't use that service. And also Dropbox doesn't, while they encrypt the information, they they will readily decrypt it and turn it over and... and um, you know, all kinds of things like that. There's an ABA commission now studying the question of what sort of rules we should have in place for cloud computing. And I wonder, uh, you know, does ECPA, for example, have a provision or does it deal with the situation where the terms of service for a a service like Dropbox or SugarSync or Box.net says, by the way, you waive all your rights and we can just decrypt your data and give it over to the government. Or is that overridden in ECPA? I guess that's my first question.
3: Tanya. Um, <laughs> so I think on as far as ECPA is concerned, uh, and things like Dropbox and other uh, services, cloud services, so Dropbox is certainly not the only one that that people have been using, um, including attorneys, to store information in the cloud. And there are an infinite number of issues, so I I'd sort of try to take one thing at a time and, and, and not spend all of our time on this, but so ECPA would... Um, There would still be terms of use out there and restrictions, contractual uh, restrictions and I think the ability of folks to give a private organization the right to share data under certain circumstances. Um, There might be certain circumstances where a company and the national security issues were were brought up before might not be able to notify individuals or companies. that they had to share data with the government if there was uh, one of those kinds of investigations going on. I don't know that FBA, um, as proposed in the changes, would would um, really have any impact on those national security type concerns and issues, which have certainly raised a lot of discussion. Um, but setting aside that, I think that most organizations will still reserve their right in terms of use to share data with the government when they need to, um, as a matter of law uh, and under or is required by law whether we're talking about a criminal investigation and I'm not a criminal lawyer um, so I, I, I'm not going to get into that too much but, but also in civil litigation and discovery most private sector organizations that offer hosting services storage cloud um, do reserve their right to share information that's subpoenaed or um, sought in discovery and litigation and they in some ways need to do that Um, There may be state laws and other things that require them to provide certain notices under certain situations. But, um, you know, everyone is going to still reserve their rights to share when when they need to. The bigger issues, well, not the bigger issues, some of the other issues on cloud with lawyers especially involve, as a matter of ethics and confidentiality, whether lawyers can appropriately store their information in a location that's not adequately secured. There are questions about encryption, there are questions um, with Dropbox and other uh, services as to whether, you know, Google Docs even, uh, lawyers using Google Docs um, that may not have any protection. Um, I've had a lot of really interesting conversations recently about whether information that's just out there on the Internet. Um, is there for everyone or only for certain people. And this, believe it or not, is still a, legit, uh, a discussion that's being had. Um, I think in the security community, it's pretty clear. And I know my friends in the information security community would say quite strongly, if you're gonna put your data, whether you're a lawyer or uh, some other kind of organization that has sensitive information, privilege information, financial, health, if you're gonna put it out there in a public cloud service, Um, You better encrypt it. You better take responsibility for the security of that information. You better put measures in there to protect it. Because you could find yourself in a really terrible situation if you have a breach. And that breach could happen either as a result of your own uh, mistake or uh, wrongdoing, or it could happen because the bad guys um, are determined to get in there. And if they're determined to get in there, they they will get in there, as we've seen.
0: So let me just interject here. There's a really good discussion on another show on our network right on this topic, Security Now, which is an awesome show with Steve Gibson and Leo Laporte. Um, Earlier this week, I think they recorded on the 25th, Steve was talking about this concept of pre-internet encryption or Pi, uh, which is the... I guess it's a distinction between what Dropbox does and what some other services do. But basically, if you have pre-internet encryption going on, the user has the only encryption key. Uh, they create it, they control it, it can't be decrypted um, on the backend or server end, the storage side end. So that would somewhat guard against um, having your data be vulnerable to subpoena, etc., if you're controlling the only encryption key of course you know that doesn't mean you couldn't be <laughs> required to fork it over but at least it would um take that obligation and, and or burden off the uh the service so i encourage folks to to go check that out have you heard of that concept before uh, tanya
3: there are a lot of uh, interesting encryption solutions out there and some of them are quite um Not not really that expensive Uh, this one in particular that you're talking about I don't know a whole lot about but I do know about uh, many services that are being offered to folks of all size you know organizations of all sizes and again I would I would say if you are using a cloud service you should not assume or or think that the service the service is going to provide you with encryption unless they go out of their way to tell you that that's a benefit and there are some service providers out there that do Make a, a point of offering encryption, and and that's a competitive sort of, um, you know, something that they compete in is privacy and security for that information. So some services do, but if they don't, and if they don't tell you that they do, um, you really have to do it yourself, and you need to take those measures. And so there are things. There's even free uh, tools like. Um, TrueCrypt, uh, which is software that's available online, which I'm not, uh, certainly not endorsing in any way. I want to be clear about that. But uh, but there are free products available. There are free email encryption products that are available and some that are very low cost. So um, encryption is not something that folks need to be afraid of. Um, it is a big step in the right direction of reasonable security, although reasonable security means a lot of other things, too. Uh, but. It, Yeah, I mean, if you want to protect your data in the first instance, um, you may still have to turn it over, and and there may be situations where a government has the right to ask for the keys or to decrypt information. Although those are probably pretty extreme circumstances, Mm -hmm. Uh, but but yes, people, any user of that of these technologies, cloud, needs to take their own responsibility. If you are the data owner, that is your by default, that is your responsibility, unless it's changed by contract.
0: right. Well, let's uh, talk about in a minute here another situation, a real world situation where a company was required to turn over user data, something Evan uh, can chime in on in some detail involving Twitter. But before we get to that, I want to thank our first sponsor for episode 113 of This Week in Law, and that's Netflix. Netflix delivers movies directly to your home, and that saves you time, money, and hassle. You can instantly watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed directly to your PC or Mac or stream to your TV via a Netflix-ready device, including Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii. Of course, your tablet device is a great place to enjoy Netflix Instant as well. And they still do the DVDs by mail, and we love that here in our house, too. So I have the account that does both. Uh, you can watch as many movies as you want, anytime you want. There are never any late fees or due dates. And in honor of uh, someone much in the news these days, our movie, our uh, Netflix streaming pick of the week this week is *True Lies*. Starting our governor or former governor, excuse me, Arnold Schwarzenegger here in California. Um, don't no need to go too much into. Uh, The saga and drama that has been surrounding his life, but the comedy in this movie is quite good. If you never caught it the first time around, it is uh, getting sort of aged at this point, but it's a hysterical movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jamie Lee Curtis, and directed by James Cameron. Uh, Very funny movie, and it's available there on Netflix Instant. All you need to do is uh, fire up Netflix, either on your DVD player, a lot of Samsung DVD players, for example, are shipping with Netflix built right in, or any other uh, device that brings Netflix to your television or your phone or your tablet. Go ahead and fire it up because it's a really funny movie and you can get a free trial membership where you can watch that and any other selection in the Netflix Instant category when you go to netflix.com slash twit. Be sure to sign up for that free trial membership at netflix.com slash twit. Thanks so much, Netflix, for your support. So, Evan, let's uh, let's talk about Twitter and the super injunction and uh, the data that Twitter was asked to fork over and how it handled that situation. This was in the U.K., if I'm not mistaken, and involved someone who's a famous football player over there. Can you tell us what happened?
1: Yeah, it's Ryan Giggs. (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. And you know, here in the United States, it's been all right to to say that all along. He's the famous footballer from Manchester, and you know, it, and this is just something that that um, you know, honestly, I hadn't paid a whole lot of attention to recently. But it's it's there's been some situations like this that have come up in the UK, and it's a point that is is really fun for us to talk about here because it's on this point that we see a really uh, uh, vast. Uh, difference between the sensibilities of free speech over in the UK and those sensibilities that we enjoy here in the United States. What it is, uh, this footballer, soccer player, uh, Ryan Giggs, um, was um, uh, it, it became a rumor that he had had uh, an affair with a reality television star uh, over there in the in the UK and um, coincidentally that the show was was big brother that that his um, alleged uh, mistress uh, was was on He ah, obtained the irony right, <laughs> right He obtained one of these super injunctions, which is a really alien concept to, to us over here in the US essentially what it is he got a court order that put a gag on just about everyone From reporting on this alleged affair, so by virtue of this, um, you know, all media uh, was were prohibited from uh, revealing his name in connection with this story. Uh, So this, the 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 purported protection of this super injunction was circumvented or undermined or however you want to characterize it by. Uh, thousands upon thousands of Twitter users who began tweeting his name uh, late last week. And so he ran into uh, court and uh, filed an action um, against the platform Twitter Incorporated and all, uh, you know, and then thousands of other parties unknown, you know, those, those individual Twitter users who were actually tweeting his name. This was big news in uh, the UK. Uh, over uh, over the weekend, it was on the front page of the Sky News website all weekend. Uh, this this story, notwithstanding the fact that there was a bombing in Northern Ireland, this was still, you know, bigger news than than that. Um, and so, um, you know, it was it, it was really over the weekend that it was that it was a huge story. You know, what's what's what to, is to be made of this? At that point, the media, uh, the BBC and Sky News and others were not. Uh, disclosing his name because this, this, uh, you know, they were, they didn't want to risk liability under this super injunction. Uh, early this past week, one of the members of parliament uh, acting under a, some sort of parliamentary. Uh, privileged, read uh, the guy Ryan Giggs's name into the the record of Parliament or whatever it is, and so then the news media could then, of course, start reporting on it, um, you know, free of of any violation of of this this super injunction. So over the weekend, um, I was uh, really fortunate. Sorry, I, over the weekend, I was really fortunate to be asked by Sky News uh, to to appear. Uh, live during uh, you know the evening hour to to talk about some of this thing. So I, I, I had a great time uh, having the opportunity to talk about you know Twitter's potential liability for this and drawing a distinction between you know our sensibilities here when it comes to uh, both the, the the fundamental central. Freedom of speech issue here, and also this whole question of the liability for the for the intermediary, Twitter here as the um, as, as the intermediary. So Sky News is very fast paced. For you know, if, if you if you've seen it, um, you know, very you know very sound ish. So I, I got the chance to talk for you know answer three or four questions in the course of about three minutes there. But mm. uh, so I talked about those things, and then afterward um, I I noticed that um, you know as I was coming. Uh, back out of the city, I had to come in, you know, downtown Chicago to to be on on Sky News. I was at the CBS uh, studio here in Chicago, and then on my way back out into the suburbs, I noticed that one of the producers from the BBC had started following me on Twitter, and he uh, sent me a direct message. So later in the in the day, I, I had the chance to kind of go into a little bit more detail about these things uh, on on the BBC uh, Five Live. It was you know it had been about 11 o'clock at night in the UK, so talked a little bit more in detail. Got to talk about uh, you know, the anti-liable tourism bill that President Obama signed last year that would prohibit any court in the U.S. from entering a judgment, a foreign judgment against uh, a U.S. company for defamation that was entered in um, violation of, uh, you know, the U.S. law of defamation, and particularly Section 230. So a very interesting uh, scenario here where we have a real uh, conflict between the sensibilities of freedom of speech and defamation law and intermediary liability or intermediary immunity really causing quite a, um, a hubbub uh, you know, in, in the context of this super injunction, uh, that, you know, as I've said a couple of times are really the strange concept to us over here where we, you know, the, the concept of freedom of speech is, is baked into, to our constitution. So it's been a really interesting thing. I guess the most recent development is as Twitter says, well, you know, it'll do if it, if it'll, it'll turn over the information about these users. Uh, if it has to, you know, because it's been, you know, it's been ordered by the court to turn over the identity of, of these users. Um, clearly, we know Twitter's sensibilities when it comes to the First Amendment and protecting the right of its users to defend themselves. We've seen that with how it's responded to the U.S. government's investigation of the WikiLeaks thing. Uh, so it'll, it's yet to be seen how, uh, you know, the European component of, of Twitter uh, or the, the, at least the transatlantic component of Twitter will, uh, will, will handle all of this stuff. Really, really, really fun to think about and talk about.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. Zeph in IRC is asking, how can you put a gag order on an entire population? I guess that's the larger question. And, and I shot back to him. I guess it was uh, more effective in the era before Twitter and other instant online communication tools. Uh, but the larger question is, you know, wh- how Twitter is going to respond to this sort of thing and what it's required to do. And I guess the, the position it's taken and really the only thing they can do if they want to do business in countries that are requiring it to turn over data is is to comply with those requests, but to also be very transparent and keep users in the loop and give them the opportunity to do whatever they can to block the turning over of information um, if that's Available under the applicable law, Tanya. Any thoughts here?
3: You know, it's I, what strikes me is just how difficult it is for multinational uh, organizations uh, to comply with these conflicting requirements and um, sensibilities and um, cultural differences um, and do what's right in each situation. Because so you have sort of an inherent tension between the global flow of data. And citizens sort of participating in a global community of speech and uh, data exchange, uh, wanting to share data in a lot of ways. And you have um, that in inherent tension with the different sensibilities and laws um, around the world as to uh, what kind of speech is protected and what kind of data is protected. And, and it's just, it's almost impossible to comply and appreciate and be sensitive to every single one. We see it all the time in the privacy space um, because in Europe there are uh, fundamental rights of privacy that we don't have here. And we saw something that's not exactly the same, but, um, but this all reminds me of it uh, in, over the last few years with Google in Italy. And the uh, situation with the um, posting of of a video um, that uh, actually resulted in criminal, uh, a criminal trial of Google executives um, because of the amount of time that a video uh, was on on the website and such a different concept of immunity of um, internet service or interactive service providers um, like Google, like YouTube, like Twitter. And uh, I think Evan mentioned uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. We have, in our legal system, certain notions about immunity of service providers, where you have user-generated content, and the service uh, provider, the computing service, is not really uh, contributing or um, curating that uh, in any way. Um, but in other countries and other parts of the world, it's a very different uh, situation. and so. It is a major question how uh, large um, organizations that have a ton of data and a ton of user-generated content are going to deal with these conflicting cultural norms and uh, laws. And I don't know how. I, I honestly think it's it's something that's going to take us years and years uh, to deal with.
0: Evan, over on our Facebook page, uh, we had a funny comment from. Let's see. It was uh, Andrew Thompson who said, "I love the quote." in the article, and it was the Guardian article I think that you also linked to, um, about how people trust traditional media over a bunch of websites. I have news for that, Lord Judge. People trust websites much more than traditional media. Um, How did that come into play here? Why was there a discussion about whether Twitter was a traditional media site or not?
1: Well, I think the the important point here was how Twitter uh was uh you know how these these users and i'm quoting the uh i forget his title the culture secretary or something from the uk that was really making an ass out of the system here you know there it was beyond the scope of any reasonable kind of 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 reach that the court system could could have here and so all of this was happening independent of you know, which platform or which source of information would be inherently more trustworthy here. I I imagine that the way that a reasonable person would think about this is it's going to depend on the nature of the information that is being distributed uh, and where it's coming from, which individual social media user uh, it originates with that's going to translate into a a higher or lower level of trustability or reliability in in all of this. Um, You know, I had a little bit of of an experience with that this past week when there were tornadoes in my hometown in Bedford, Indiana. I was, of course, looking at the mainstream media, uh, what you know, their accounts, like the Indianapolis television stations, and what they were saying about all this stuff. But the information that I found most useful, and and frankly, I trusted more, came from those people who were tweeting right there, uh, where this was happening. So um, there's, there are no bright lines to be drawn here. Uh, There are only sensibilities to be applied uh, based on a very uh, specific calculus that arises in each in each in each situation that's how i that's how i see it
0: yeah those super injections seem like a very wacky (laughs) bit of law to me another wacky concept is is the notion that uh, disney could try to trademark seal team six which it apparently did for a little while ernie i'm guessing you added this to our discussion points am i guessing right on that
2: uh, yes. Well, I, yes. I think I, I think I mentioned something about it and you picked up my, uh, delicious link or something. I oh, remember the, how I yes, to Yes, that was it. But yeah, no, I thought, I, you know, it's funny. I got a call from a radio station. I've been busy doing other things. I got this call and I said, would you come on the radio and comment about this whole thing? And I, I knew nothing about it. And I quickly checked the interwebs, which was hot to trot with all of this discussion. And then, and I, I when I read it, I couldn't believe, it just seems so ridiculous, that Disney would try to arrogate that, you know, that right and not see that there was going to be a public relations disaster. Um, But, you know, what happened, I guess, was, and then, then, of course, so so Disney tries to trademark it, and then um, the, the military objects, and people say, this is horrible, you're trying to take advantage of this recent thing. And so then the military files its own trademark application. And I guess in the end, Disney's backed down. So um, the Disney t- I mean, the, the, um, the military took out Osama and now it took out Disney. So two for, two for O for the military.
0: <laughs> and they both deserved it, as I think you said. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hysterical. All right. Well, as long as we're uh, talking a bit of Hollywood gossip, um, I haven't gone to see Hangover 2 yet, but the, uh, the legal angle of that is that we're able to go see Hangover 2, as we talked about a couple of shows ago. Uh, there has been an ongoing dispute about uh, whether the use of the Mike Tyson-esque facial tattoo on uh, one of the actors. Uh, his name is escaping me. I've seen him on all the late night Ed talk Helms. shows. So say, ah, thank you. Ed Helms?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: Yes. yes. Um, so office he, Yes, yes, yes. That's right. Um, <laughs> such a funny guy. Anyway, um, the, the movie is out and uh, there were were some interesting uh, judicial back and forth about uh, whether an injunction should issue. And uh, what I found interesting about that is um, that the judge in charge of this case seems to think that uh And she is a district judge in California here. Um, She seems to think that there's a very strong copyright case involved, but just that the harm of keeping the movie from being released on time was too strong to have a preliminary injunction issue here. Uh, Evan, since you covered this before, there he is. (laughs) Since you covered this before, uh, any thoughts on uh, the fact that uh, the movie came out and, and the lawsuit goes on?
1: Well, it's interesting to see how fluid um, the injunction question can be in an in intellectual property matter, or for any matter, uh, for that for that case. Um, the, you know, there are a number of factors that the court had to look at here, and in something that is obscured in a lot of the coverage of, of this situation is that the court did indeed find that the tattoo tattoo artist uh, does. Uh, did make a showing that he will likely succeed ultimately on the merits of, of the copyright claim here. And that's something that's mm-hmm. overshadowed by the end result here, with the, which is the court's conclusion as to this injunction. No, we sh- this injunction should not issue. The movie should not be prohibited for some other reason, one of the other factors here. So, from what i can tell the court came to the right decision here because it leaves open the question of whether this infringement did occur we'll get to that if the case doesn't settle between now and then um uh, but the the part that i was pleased to see was the emphasis on this balancing of the hardships and it really makes sense that this movie should not be uh, stopped from from being released not only for the sake of benefiting Warner Brothers, who has invested eighty million dollars, give or take a few pennies here and there, to market the the, the movie, but also the independent uh, franchisees, the the um, theater owners, and the concession stand workers, and the you know the seventeen year olds tearing the tickets in half and telling you that it's in studio, you know um, theater number seven down the hall on the on the right. So that is what I was pleased to see. Uh, Way into all of this, and, and leads me to conclude that it was it was a good decision, and makes sense both from a practical standpoint and in terms of the application of, of copyright law.
0: All right. Well, I want to get to another copyright issue and when uh, someone's copyright should be enforced, and how little guys um, might be benefited or not by copyright law, and I also want to get into what uh, Carrie Sherman was making at the RIAA. But before we get to those, I wanna thank our sp- second sponsor for episode 113 of This Week in Law. And that's squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high quality website or a blog. Squarespace.com has an easy to use UI for creating and managing a website or blog. I use it, I love it. It's uh, truly the, the nicest arrangement I've ever had for creating both a site and a blog. It's optimized for both beginners and CSS experts. It has hundreds of design templates to choose from and you can customize any of them to fit your needs. It has a beautiful iPhone and iPad app for updating your blog on the go. And it's online resources are really, really great. Um, Huge uh, FAQ and help and support database. And there's a support team that gives you help 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So if you enter a support ticket, it just doesn't go into the ether. They actually get right back to you and (laughs) make sure that if you're having an issue that's not answered by all of the material they have there, they're gonna get you a specific response. Their all-inclusive service includes several modules to build your website. There's a blog module that includes import and export support. For all the biggies out there, WordPress, Blogger, Movable Type, and TypePad, That means data export portability Uh, There's a form builder to collect email addresses and other information from your site visitors. There's Flickr photo display. You can choose a thumbnail or slideshow view. A Twitter widget that displays tweets on your website in a customizable and great looking format. There are social media buttons to connect your website visitors to your networks on Facebook and Twitter, Google Maps, and more. The website tracking and statistics let you know how many times your site is viewed, and there's a built-in search engine optimizer, which works great, permission access handling, and really, really important point, it's cloud architecture means that your site is going to be fast and reliable and stay up no matter what is happening on the internet uh, as far as discussion and linking to your site. So use Squarespace for all your website needs. Build it, host it, and update it anytime. And you can get a free 14-day trial by going to squarespace. I'm sorry, squarespace.com slash twill. Sign up for a free account. There's no credit card needed. Just try it out and start building your site. And after you try it out, be sure to check out their annual plans for a savings of up to 20% off. Squarespace.com slash twill. Thank you so much, Squarespace, for your support. So, Evan, if you're a person who happens to be on an airplane and you happen to see the space shuttle go by and you think it's interesting and you have your phone, no doubt, in airplane mode, but it can still take pictures. And uh, you snap a few shots and then post them up to TwitPic. What happens then?
1: Wow, that's uh, it, it. Can go it can go crazy. Yeah, that that happened. You know, just just uh, recently with the the launch of the space shuttle. What, what was it, Endeavor? That was that, that was up. Um, this this woman. Uh, I don't have the article in front of me here. I know that that I send it to you here. There's the picture for those who are watching the video, taken out of the the airplane window of the shuttle going through the clouds, snapped with an iPhone and posted to to Twitpic. Um, Stephanie I mean, the,
0: Gordon is her name.
1: Stephanie Gordon so the the present controversy here is the uh, unauthorized use of that photo by news outlets and others you know it, we should quick to point out here that some news outlets did indeed pay her a licensing fee to use this photo, but other sources seem to have trod on her copyright rights in this photo. And so this presents us with the, the, the real question of, you know, what is fair? What are the right sensibilities in this? How do norms apply to copyright law here? How does the newsworthiness of an item factor into whether or not it's appropriate for someone to take a photograph that is, that is shared by, uh, that, that someone shares online and, and run with it. And so it, it, it's an, just like so many of the things that we talk about here, it presents an interesting challenge to some of the essential fundamentals of copyright law, the right to, to own the copyright in a creative work and to, to have the exclusive right in, in determining how that is displayed or shared or, or copied or redistributed or whatever. That whole fundamental notion, that set of fundamental notions gets, gets turned uh, on its head a little bit when it's a newsworthy item here, and that is put on steroids. That idea of being turned on its head is, is put on steroids when uh, the tools like TwitPic and, and you know, using Twitter to, to distribute it so widely and radically really makes it uh, even much more, uh, much more extravagant here. So it, it really challenges some of the things we, we think of with, with copyright law.
0: Yeah, and this story, I think, made me think a lot about how we talk a lot about on the show copyright being overbroad and perhaps in need of reform. But when you think about someone who just, you know, as part of their personal data stream almost throws something out into the ether and then has to... Perhaps, you know, have this very burdensome obligation if they want to protect their rights in what they've put out there, uh, that maybe the breadth of copyright law should be tailored to who the user is. Uh, Ernie, what do you think about that?
2: Who the user, you mean, so I'm not sure I understand what you're saying about it focusing on the user.
0: You know, if this were um, a large media conglomerate who'd taken this photo, um, we would expect them to take all the proper steps of registering the copyright and perhaps employing third-party software to go out and make sure that the photo that they'd taken was being used in proper context, maybe hire someone like Wright Haven to go after people not <laughs> using it in the proper context. But here we've got Stephanie Gordon. And she's taken this awesome photo that's being used, you know, sometimes with her permission, but often without and without compensation. And do we really expect her to do all those things?
2: Oh, no. I mean, obviously, she's not, We barely expect people who know how to how to practice law to do those things um right and yeah i mean i guess it's it is an interesting question you know in this case she got paid by some of the news organizations the fellow who took the picture on the plane that crashed in the hudson was also cited in that article and so apparently nobody paid him um although he wound up in the article it was explained he wound up getting a better job and doing different things than he had done before and so uh, you know I don't number one I don't think we need to rush out to change copyright law because those two people had problems I mean I think if we're gonna change copyright law and I think we should I don't think it's to deal with that scenario that isn't likely to occur as much I think it's more you know I'm not sure how we need to change it but but those are kind of outlier examples and um, you know she got paid which is good and maybe she gets some other benefits She probably, if she hadn't used social media to broadcast, you know, the the news that she had taken the picture, which means that it was put out there for everybody to see, she probably wouldn't have got paid at all, and nobody would have known that she had done it. So there's this catch-22. If you put it out there, you get attention, people know about it, but then some people steal it from you. But if you don't put it out there, nobody knows you had it, and you don't get compensated at all for sure. So I don't know how the law would deal with that conundrum.
0: Yeah, it just strikes me as a, a paradox that we face in media and copyright today.
2: You made um,
1: uh, an, an interesting reference there to, you know, whether it should be different based on who the, the plaintiff is. You know, should an individual using social media have a different set of uh, or at least a different course of remedies or you know from point A to point B of getting a remedy then what should a major media company have and and we should really be careful for what we wish for if we're going to think that it, the the enforcement of copyright rights is to be made easier because so much of the complaints I think that we have about copyright litigation is overreaching and, and claims that are being made that shouldn't even be made in the first place. So lowering the, the barrier of entry to, to copyright litigation, the the idea of easing, easing the burden of this affirmative right that a copyright owner has could be met with you know some unintended consequences of more and more silly lawsuits that Paradoxically, as you're as you're pointing out here, would make it uh, you know a f- would open the floodgates to even more silly copyright litigation. So it's a, it's a delicate system to tinker with.
0: And I would right.
3: just throw in here that I think we need to look at it from the other side as well, um, in terms of the application of the fair use um, defenses, because we wouldn't want to have a system where whether something is a fair use is based on whether the Uh, organization or individual claiming fair use is a small uh, company or an individual or a very large company and I think uh, in the same way to base the law or any law uh, based on who the plaintiff is, who the defendant is regardless of size would, would, uh, would in many ways eliminate the benefits of having a legal system to protect those rights and remember that the person who's the little guy today um, throwing a photo up on the internet could be um, a multinational uh, corporation with a lot of power in five or ten years so we, sure. I, I don't think it would make sense um, to, to apply protections and make them available under the law based on you know who the, the recipient or the
0: beneficiary yep yeah, I totally agree with you and uh, those are excellent points so uh, Tanya, you last weekend went to the Privacy Identity and Innovation Conference up in Northern California, and uh, since i couldn't attend and I know there were very interesting things discussed there. I wonder if you could just bring us up to speed, give us your observations any high points?
3: Sure, so gosh, there's so much going on uh, in that space I think the the theme that's recurring in the privacy world and and the uh, it, particularly when it comes to technology and and the notion of privacy by design, um, the, the the recurring theme is user control. Um, how much control do users have over their data? And actually, um, this in in some ways it, it there's a, a relationship to what we're talking about with mm-hmm. intellectual property and copyright protection because. This notion of what um, is protected when you put it out there and on the internet—if um, you take a photo, uh, you may have copyright protection—but when you put your data, your data, your personal data, is not protected by uh, intellectual property laws. And you don't, um, at least under the laws that exist today, you as an individual don't own your data. You may have certain rights. Um, and choices as to how you can control it and, how, and what organizations can do with it and so what I think in the private sector what organizations um, and, and a number of, of uh, companies are trying to figure out is what what's the best way to give users that control. Um, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of um, bad uh, feeling about existing privacy policies and how they have evolved over time and the notion of whether a privacy policy is really the best way to communicate that information to consumers. And I think we're all in agreement in this world, in the privacy security world, that um, traditional privacy policies with a lot of fine print that go on for 23 pages and have uh, something buried in there about how a company can user uh, share your information for any reason it wants that's not the way uh, to handle it. Um, there is a big movement towards shorter more simple privacy notice. Trustee was there uh, Fran Meyer Trustee and others talking about um, their research and studies about shorter privacy notices and the best way to put those out there and, and communicate ideas Is it the icon approach um, that has been uh, championed by a number of large organizations, uh, Yahoo and others, um, various advertisers, for for letting someone know uh, how that is being used? You know, one researcher, Ryan Callow, who's from Stanford, uh, talked about how Having a traditional privacy notice is sort of like if you're getting on the freeway, and you, as you're getting on the freeway, there's a big sign that tells you all the speed limits that are gonna happen as you travel down the road, you know, for the next 30 miles or something. Uh, it's all there, at the, and you find print at the beginning, and you have to somehow absorb it. Um, that isn't really how we do things when we go out driving. There are signs along the way that tell us uh, what, how we're regulated and, and the choices that we have. So, how do we do that in the privacy space? And how do we do it, especially in mobile, where we're all carrying around? um, My phone is off, uh, but I'm just, you know, we're carrying these around uh, and it's tiny little screens. And how do we present uh, a notice um, that is comprehensible and clear and to the point and that your average consumer will both read and understand? Um, I can tell you from the perspective of the folks who are representing industry. Um, of all sizes both the startups and the larger companies everyone wants to do the right thing here everyone is striving to do the right thing here at the same time they don't want their um, ability to market and provide relevant marketing to consumers to be hindered in a way that would um, affect business unlike anything else we've, we've seen before Um, in our economy, Um, so it's a difficult balance, balancing innovation and privacy, which is what the PII conference is all about. We talked about legislation like Kerry McCain, like the EPO revisions that that are proposed out there. California has some really interesting bills that are out there right now, uh, including social networking laws, uh, 242, from Senator Corbett in California that would actually require the default to be that information is private, and there's a lot of pushback, not surprisingly, from the social networking uh, world on that. Um, how do we give users what they want, which is they want to share everything, but they want to have control of everything. You um, can't really have it all, unfortunately, um, all the time. So users need to readjust their expectations, I think, and organizations need to find better ways to build in privacy and user control um, and communicate those choices, um, opt outs, to their to uh, their users.
0: This is something we've discussed a lot on the show in the context of Project VRM. Doc Searles out at Harvard. Uh, There was a good Wall Street Journal piece by Sandy Pentland, a professor at MIT's Media Lab over the last week. She says the simplest and most logical approach would be one that allows consumers to manage their data and receive compensation in exchange for making it available to firms who want to market to them. And I totally agree with you, Tanya. That sounds a lot like uh... the regime that we have in place for intellectual property that's never been applied over in this sort of personal information arena and just to throw another twist on it should you really think of somebody's space shuttle photo that they're snapping out of the window of an airplane as they're flying along you know is is that appropriately dealt with in the intellectual property arena or is it you know an item of personal data really more ernie what do you think about all this
2: Um, well, I think that this is all in, you know, it's all in flux because it's so new. People's expectations have been, um, have been shifted in some cases, uh, unwillingly, you know, they didn't invite that. I mean, it's, it's funny because I, I, I've given this talk on social media for lawyers a bunch of times and I've just given it recently several times. And it's always interesting to me when this, when, this, when I give the talk and there's, there, there's invariably discussion and the discussion that comes from older lawyers or older judges and it's not necessarily the case that just because you are older and don't use these tools that you immediately decry them and put them down um, but that is often the case and and you know what I find really interesting is I, I've taken great pains in giving this talk to try to explain what Twitter is because I think I don't use Facebook that much. I mean, I think it's, it's nice. I understand what its use is. It's for, you know, people you know. But I think Twitter is something that if you just like to consume information, it's a great way to consume information. It's like the teletype that the AP machine, you know, that the, the journalists used to have and you had to pay for, except you can now get your news feeds from wherever and it's free. So forget, you know, tweeting. You're not going to tweet. You can even do it anonymously as some judges are doing and even Justice Breyer now apparently has discovered Twitter as a way of you know gathering information. It's a great information gathering tool and you can explain this to people and after you explain it they don't hear any of that. What they hear is there's a bunch of stuff out on the web, I don't control it and so I'm going to avoid it when that was not at all what was said. So people Mm -hmm. you know they they come to this with their own preconceptions and they tend not to want to change those preconceptions if they are um, you know, set against it, that's been my experience.
0: Right. Hey, I realized I teased what Kerry uh, Sherman's 09 salary was without ever getting to that, so I should just mention in passing uh, via Bob Lefset's, um, I guess there was. Let's see. How did exactly did this come? CEO Update, a DC based trade pub, trade publication for association executives. Uh, goes around and digs up um, information on lobbyist salaries. So I guess Kerry Sherman fell into that uh, because he lobbied in Washington on a number of different fronts. Almost $3.2 million in '09, Mr. Sherman pulled down for his uh, work at the RAAA. So I guess um, that's what you get when you're out there fighting against file sharing. Uh, Evan, any thoughts?
1: Well, that's a that's a lot of money, and you know, I you <laughs> see the results, and you see the results, in, uh you know, so many Byzantine sections of the the Copyright Act. You know, tell me tell me in five words what Section One Twelve is about. You know, I mean, it's just, just it's just all just just craziness that you know there there's it's yeah. So it it, it comes as no surprise, and it's not. It's not necessarily fair. I mean, they have those resources, so they might as well use them. That's what free enterprise is all about. But the the more subtle question is whether or not that really does serve the public interest. And I think that's where we, um, where the, the the fruitful kind of discussion can come.
0: Yep, exactly. All right, so uh, having gotten around to that, I want to get to, to our tip and resource of the week. Our tip of the week uh, comes from Evan's neck of the woods. If you were somebody who saw Social Network or read the book and believes this notion that uh, the juggernaut of all social networking companies was started in um, an impulse to rate the hotness of Mark Zuckerberg's fellow uh, students at Harvard, and Mm -hmm. you're you're inspired by that, and you decide you're going to start rating your fellow students, you might want to think twice about it because it could get you charged with a crime, it turns out. Uh, There was a high school student, his uh, name has not been released, he's a minor. In Chicago, he created a Facebook list ranking 50 high school girls according to their facial features and body types. First he got himself expelled, and now he's charged with a misdemeanor. So uh, the tip of the week, I guess, is, you know, if you're thinking you're going to get somewhere by rating hotness, think again. Evan, any thoughts on this since it's uh, from your area and... Um, seems to be uh, we, just one of several stories um, we, we've been emailing this week about the guy who, and I saw this on Conan O'Brien last night, so apparently it's getting some national play. <laughs> the guy who's parking um, a well-endowed uh, young woman next to him in the courtroom, uh, allegedly in an effort to distract the jury, and is now being challenged on that. So, uh, right. Evan, what's going on there in Chicago?
1: That's just the way it is, you know. It's <laughs> the way we approach all of our matters here is find the, you know, the sexy component to it. That's, that's, that's how we practice law here. So, Got it. yeah, I mean, this poor kid, you know, this is what, you know, I mean, even before Facebook, you know, going starting in the early aughts was, you know, hot or not.com. I haven't been sure. there in a while. I'm sure it's still around. So this is, and, you know, the, the story that we're talking about is one that Kashmir Hill Wrote on the not so private parts, you know, her blog over there at Forbes. And, you know, Mm -hmm. isn't she just a great blogger? She's really one of my favorite bloggers. These days, and so you know she makes the good point of you know this is a, this is an, an enterprise that has been going on among uh, certainly among males and, and probably among a lot of females for a long long time, and so it's a little bit you know sure it's a little bit troubling to see this poor kid get arrested for it. Um, I, I trust that there are some other facts that support the claims of disorderly conduct against him other than just the mere fact of doing this. I think it probably some of it had to do with handing out flyers at school maybe that had uh, had something to do with it so yeah. yeah. It it is, it's just the day in the life of Chicago.
0: (laughs) All right, and if you're a a VC or a startup, Your life is much concerned with privacy and all the kinds of considerations we've been talking about on the show today. And our resource of the week is a great piece over on Tanya's firm's website. It's called Privacy by Design, a Key Concern for VCs and Startups. Tanya, can you quickly explain for us what Privacy by Design is? And then I'm going to just let people go look at the article because um, that is what you need to be reviewing to incorporate it into your business.
3: Right, so privacy by design is something that has been um, in discussion for uh, quite some time now. Actually the concept, I'll just, uh, I wanna give appropriate Credit for the concept, which was originally developed by the Information and Privacy Commissioner of Canada, Anne Kabukian. So she gets credit for coming up with this quite some time ago. Actually, the notion of privacy by design, and actually they had a video from um, from her at PII uh, 2011 last week, where the conference I was talking about, where she was talking about some new things with privacy um, by redesign. Uh, So we're we're now beyond uh, privacy by design, but privacy by design, the idea is that you bake in controls into your, um, as a startup, um, into your business model. So you think about these things before. You you don't worry about it on the back end when you start getting sued by consumers and uh, perhaps investigated by regulators. You deal with it up front. So one way I like to think about it is information, health, and wellness. Uh, Like when you go to a doctor to get a checkup. Put the privacy in, put the privacy controls in, user choices, um, notices, um, understanding your data flows. Where's the information going within your company? Where is it sensitive? Where does it need to be safeguarded, protected? We talked about encryption earlier. Doing all that upfront, check it out, have your information flows be healthy and well from the start. And this is something that VCs may also want to be looking at as they make decisions um, in going into uh, the current business world and where technology is going. And then you are reducing and mitigating the risk that in the long run, you're going to have these problems that we see so many companies, you know. Unfortunately, the model up until now with some organizations and I'll, I'll call out Google and Facebook just because they're so big. And because they've had so much publicity around this, but they're hardly the only ones where, um, you know, it's been sort of trial and error. Like, um, here's our privacy policy. Uh, Nobody likes it. There's a huge uh, backlash. Oh, we don't have control over this. You just changed all your privacy settings. And the reaction is, oops, we're sorry. Uh, We didn't mean it. That way, uh, let's go back and we'll, we'll do it differently. It's very hard to make those changes and there are actually rules around how you have to get consent to get to those changes and regulators are very carefully watching this and especially in the mobile space. So privacy by design means getting in there upfront, Put the court controls in from the beginning, and have it be part of your business model. Don't think of it as a—it's not a legal problem on the back end. It's part of your business model and your and your method of competing in the marketplace to appeal to consumers on the front end. So I want to thank my partner uh, Dave Navetta and my uh, associate, Nicole Fries, for a fantastic article and you should definitely check it out on our website. It's a lot of really helpful information.
0: It is and I just love that concept of, of, as you said, making it a selling point for a company that, hey, you know, we we know you value your privacy and we're gonna be proactive about making sure that your expectations are met at every step of the way. So thank you so much, Tanya, for that and your partner and associate for their great uh, May 23rd piece. Uh, you can find that at Information Law Group, and uh, they have a blog there. It's one of the most recent entries on the blog, so check it out. And, uh, Tanya, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. I hope we can have you back. Absolutely.
3: It's been a pleasure being here, Aaron. Thank you. Everyone's a great conversation.
0: And folks, in addition to finding Tanya at the infolawgroup.com website, she is Foresight on Twitter and is always tweeting great and insightful and informative stuff. So go check her out there. Also, uh, thanks so much, Ernie, for coming back on the show. We'd love to have you when and as ever you can. It's
2: great to be here as always. And I just want to echo what you said about how great that article was on the Information Law Group. And by the way, I want to tell you, Tanya, I love your website. I think you guys did a really great job of putting up good information. It's clean. There's a lot of really good stuff there. Um, I appreciated having the opportunity to check it out. Thank you. Thank you very much. And to talk to you.
0: Great. And folks, go find Ernie at Ernie Ernie Attorney.net. No, it's ErnieTheAttorney.net, but you're Ernie Attorney on Twitter. Yes. Yes. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. And Evan, great to have you here with us once again and uh, reporting in from the prurient city back there in the Midwest.
1: Yes, that's yeah, this is this is where it's happening. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Lots of fun to talk to you, Ernie. Great to to talk with you, Tanya. This is uh, this is this uh, this has been a really, really good one. So like I say, always a great way to spend a Friday afternoon talking uh, talking about this stuff. So thanks for having me back.
2: Good to see you,
0: Evan. Yeah, great to see you all. Uh, folks, go check out Evan at internetcases.com. He is at internetcases on Twitter. If you want to find me there, I'm D Howell. And if you want to email me, I'm denise at twit.tv. Love to hear from you about uh, anything we talked about today or anything else on your mind. We'll try and get your information and thoughts on the show. Uh, You can also give us those same things over on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash This Week in Law. We thank you for tuning in Fridays at 11 Pacific, 1800 UTC for This Week in Law. We'll see you next week. Take care.